Philly Built is brought to you by phillyzoning.com, Philadelphia's zoning authority, which is powered by Anastasio Law. Our law offices are located at 2016 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. The history of Philadelphia, like the history of any great city, is written in stone for anyone to read. Hi folks, it's Vern Anastasio and welcome again to Philly Built. Lauren Vitas is so into Philadelphia, she live tweets every single council session and even boils down the important policy points in a newsletter called Broad and Market. Today, the policy wonk and government relations pro visits us to unpack the recent mayoral primary, size up the new members of city council, and what it all means for development in Philadelphia. Welcome to Philly Built. Lauren Vitas, welcome to Philly Built. Great to be here, Vern. Thanks for for joining us. I follow you on Twitter, uh, and you happen to know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, more than just about anybody um, as it relates to Philadelphia City Council and what's going on there. And we're going to get to that, but first... Something happened uh, recently that I, uh, I'd like to unpack with you. You know, we had a couple national figures that showed up here in Philadelphia recently to try and convince us that uh, there was a new hope that we needed to get behind. But by the end of primary day, it was pretty apparent that the empire strikes back. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, uh, People for Parker ran a pretty flawless campaign uh, and ended up winning plus 30% of the vote, which was much higher than I think the uh, the, the initial polling had demonstrated. Uh, going into election night, the, the most recent polls were, were showing uh, Parker, Gim, and Reinhardt uh, running neck and neck uh, within a margin of error of each other. Um, and I think uh, the stars really did align for Parker. She ran a great campaign and was very focused on her message. Uh, and I think also to the implosion of the Jeff Brown campaign really did help boost her at the end uh, and really kind of consolidated her base for her, uh, you know, allowing her a pretty decisive victory in a, in a plurality uh, election. Yeah, a couple things about that poll. The Emerson College poll, um, and I am an alumni of uh, Emerson College, a proud one, uh, was flawed in that it uh, it assumed that more than 25% of the voting public would be very, very young, and no more than 40% of the voting public would be African American. And I think that was a major miscalculation there. Yeah, I think that um, the polls as of late have been pretty inaccurate and and I, I'm not really sure why folks you know, we we keep making the same mistake over and over again which is underestimating um, you know the black voters in uh, not not just the city of Philadelphia but ac- you know across the country really has this has been a really major hole in uh, in, in polling data um, and I think in this case you know it, it's a combination of you know, bad polls. But I also think it's a combination of that as well as the fact that heading into election day, there was a huge chunk of the populace that was 
that was undecided. Um, and again, I think that that late surge of Parker uh, just consolidating that base, you know, Jeff Brown with his ethics board investigations and just, you know, with with some holes being poked in his narrative of, of grocer does good, I think really saw him bleed a lot of his core support over to Parker in the last week or two of the campaign. Uh, and, you know, she had a resounding victory in a very crowded and competitive field. She certainly did. The Parker uh, campaign was able to stitch, you know, a, a coalition, not only of African-American voters, but white working class neighborhoods, for sure, uh, and uh, the building trades for another, uh, and uh, many of the individual ward leaders. And it, it was, in fact, a coalition. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of folks, especially on the progressive side, underestimate how moderate most of Philadelphia voters are. Um, you know, I think you, you referenced AOC and Bernie Sanders coming into town. You know, I it was interesting to see the national figures come here and... Uh, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that their politics reflect the politics of the average Philadelphian. Um, and it just felt, you know, Gim at, towards the end of her campaign was not able to broaden her base. It was just sort of reaffirm, you know, it was an echo chamber of telling the same folks the same things in a slightly different way. Uh, and, and I think that reflected in the third place finish there. Um, you know, the expansion of, of Parker's, uh, Parker's base towards the end and the relatively low ceiling that Gim had for her base really, really hurt her in the end. Uh, and I honestly believe it's what at the end made a lot of people break for Rebecca Reinhardt instead of Helen. So that even the wards that endorsed her, 39A and the first ward and the second ward, Rebecca trounced. Yeah, and I, I, I think we, we get so caught up in, in the, the ward politics situation, particularly, um, you know, particularly with the, the open wards. You know, open wards means that the committee people get to vote for who who is going to be the endorsed candidate. Those committee people aren't necessarily a reflection of the divisions or the neighborhoods they're living in. Uh, the committee people's votes are a reflection of what the committee people think. That's right. Um, and I think, you know, there's definitely a lag. Uh, there, there's definitely a disconnect in many wards. And, and not just for open wards, but closed wards as well, where it's, you know, the ward leader selecting the, you know, endorsing the candidate. It's not necessarily reflective of what that person's constituents think. Uh, but I think we, we often use, you know, ward support as, as kind of a litmus test for the direction of the neighborhood, and it's not particularly accurate in a lot of cases. Yeah, one guy who was not pleased, I, I think, if I read this correctly, uh, with Bernie Sanders and AOC coming to town was uh, the chair of the Democratic Party, Bob Brady. In fact, uh, in his press release uh, released on today, the, the 19th of May, it says, and I'm just going to read this for your input, quote, the Philadelphia Democratic Party takes a backseat to no candidate or organization as the defender of working families and the proponent of progressive leaders. And then he goes on to say, for those who have written this party off as a relic of the past, a dinosaur no longer relevant to electoral politics in Philadelphia, let me say this, the dinosaur roared. 
what do you, that's basically telling me, you know, how do you tell me you don't like what the GIM campaign did without saying you don't like what the GIM yeah, campaign did? Yeah, I mean, I, I found that press release to be incredibly cringy. Um, <laughs> we had 25% voter turnout in a major municipal election where all 17 council seats were up, where the, the, the mayor's, the mayor's race was wide open mm. and you're taking a victory lap when one, three out of four registered voters stayed home. Yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, I, I get what he's trying to say there, but it, it is, it is embarrassing how few Philadelphians showed up to vote. Um, you know, the, 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 you know, to me, the, the primary goal of the Democratic City Committee should be getting Democrats to the polls. The secondary goal is getting Democrats in primaries to vote for your endorsed candidate. Um, and it is, it is very worrisome uh, that they are so focused on getting their people elected rather than getting Democrats to the polling place because, you know, 20, 2020 came down to the wire with Biden, Trump, uh, 2024 is right around the corner. And this type of just seemingly like personal politics is going to destroy us on the national stage. Um, so I, I would hope that, you know, give city committee their due, but also, I hope there's a little more self-reflection on why 75% of Philadelphia voters stayed home in one of the most impactful elections to their quality of life, to their day-to-day. Uh, and I, I just really haven't, I really haven't seen that, and it, it's, it, it's troublesome. It's, uh, as I said, as, as someone who cares about both Big D and Little D democracy, like this, this is the, the fact that this press release took the tone it did just it, it felt very wrong to me. It, it certainly didn't sound like Chairman Brady. I mean, at least the, the, no, the man I, I, that I know. We know, uh, we know. No offense. Bob did not write that press release. Yeah. He did not sit down at his uh, MacBook Air and, and, and bang that one out. Uh, honestly, like had 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 they had the other candidate to which it was referring to one i wouldn't be surprised if we saw the same type of press release oh. you know it's you know we're, we've we've yes. entered a stage in politics where it's not about making sure that you know voters come out it, it, we're not it, it's not about turnout it's not about making sure that we get the best most competent candidate elected it's about making sure that we get our person elected regardless of who that person is um it's it's opposite sides of the the same coin is sherelle parker philadelphia's version of eric adams oh my god i honestly <laughs> that, people are boiling it every, down to that every new yorker wants you to think that um right. and i think that i think you know, comparing New York to Philadelphia is apples to oranges in a lot of ways. And why I see people like the the, the comparison uh, because of the how the candidates finished in the top three. You know, I, I think it's I think it's lazy, uh, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's incredibly lazy. I think, um, uh, you know, that's that's just that's people are using that as shorthand for everything they don't like in Eric Adams, uh, you know, pro cop. Uh, you know, I, I, Sherelle's track record as a legislature, as a legislator is incredibly impressive. Uh, she brings a far more diverse skill set, 
to the job than I think Mr. Adams did. I think I think rather than being a reflection of what whether Sherelle is like Eric Adams, I think it's probably more of a reflection of what are the shared fears and concerns of the electorate in New York and the electorate in Philadelphia. And for both of them right now, crime is the top issue. Um, so I, I think if anything, it says more about the, the shared challenges that urban centers are going through right now than, than shared characteristics of candidates. Yeah, and say what we can say what we will about the Emerson College poll getting it wrong, but every poll got it right as it relates to the number one issue on voters' minds, and that was crime. Yeah, and and, and Sherelle was the only person who actually went on television and said, you know what, we're going to end lawlessness and we're going to restore order. Of all the candidates, she's the only one who spoke to it. Yeah, and I, I think that really is just a reflection of the fact that when you looked when you look at the the candidates that were running, she had the lived experience and she had the credibility to be able to say like, hey, you know, she's raising she's raising uh, she's a single mother raising a black son like. She has a credibility on the issue and she has the, the life experience on the issue that I think all of the other candidates really lacked. And therefore, they're, they're, you know, voters were able to, you know, I think there was, a, there was a trust factor that voters who maybe, you know, like voted for her, even though they're, they're against, she calls it the constitutional return of stop and frisk, which, you know, I'm a, I'm a little, I'm kind of skeptical of whether stop and frisk can ever be done constitutionally uh, with, with the, the current kind of police contract we have in place. But I, I think people were willing to trust her because, you know, she has, she has lived this. She's, you know, she's living it now, raising, raising a black son in yeah. Philadelphia and is calling for more cops. So, um, and I, I, I really think that is why she was able to, to get out there and say those things and not be subject to the attacks that other candidates would have been subject to had they called for, you know, more cops on the streets. Right. You have spent a lot of time following city council, uh, their sessions, their weekly sessions on Thursdays. You even live tweet um, yep. what goes on there. And it's it's a fascinating uh, uh, take on on the machinations of the local uh, council. And I encourage everyone to follow you uh, and, and so just for that alone, just for the, the live tweeting. So you've covered Sherelle herself as a district council person. Based on what you've seen, what should we expect policy-wise? Yeah, I, actually, Sherelle, I think, is probably... It, it. Folks didn't really talk about it too much on the campaign trail, like, just in detail, but she is one of the more seasoned, and, and what I will say is one of the more substantive policy folks on council. Um, this is a body that has largely, over the last 10 years, become incredibly performative uh, versus substantive. Uh, and Sherelle is really one of the few exceptions to that rule. Um, so I think, you know, I, I would say there, there are two things that really strike me about her legislative style. Um, the first is her consistency to a to an issue. Uh, and the legislation may be across the board, but at the end of the day, it, it all kind of leads back to the same issue, which is this the stabilization uh, and support for our middle neighborhoods. So these are working class neighborhoods that 
that haven't seen the disinvestment that you've seen in North Philly, but also aren't center city squeaky wheel gets the grease. These are affordable neighborhoods with with good commercial corridors. Uh, and she has spent a lot of her her legislative career, you know, supporting these types of neighborhoods by making sure the commercial corridors are clean, have the resources they need. Uh, businesses have the support they need to to continue to operate. Um, home ownership for black residents in Philadelphia has been a huge issue. She understands that home ownership is a path to generational wealth. And so that has really been a focus. Um, the other thing that I will say, too, is that a number of issues that she has 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 worked on have been very, very unsexy issues, but they're issues that are critically important to kind of fixing systemic problems with government and how government operates. Um, so for by one example, the rule of two, which is a civil service rule, which I, I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want folks listening to this podcast in the car to fall asleep and <laughs> cause an accident. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, it impacts how the city can hire and promote people. Right. Uh, and it's very restrictive. And she understood that that was something holding us back uh, and introduced a charter change to basically try to address that issue. Um, so I, I really do think that, um, you know, I, I, I tweeted about this this morning. I'm, I'm actually really excited to see um, what her first 100-day priorities are, uh, because legislatively she's she's really she's really been focused uh, on on what she cares about, but also in a way that that recognizes you know she's not gonna she's not she's not gonna get a, an award from an RCO for fixing the civil service system, but by doing that, that makes sure that our trash gets picked up on time. So, you know, it's, it's going to be, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful. Um, I was, you know, personally, I was a, I was a Rebecca Reinhardt supporter. Um, but Sherelle is, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to death that if it couldn't be my candidate it ended up being Sherelle. Yeah. Uh, for months I would, you know, I live in Bella Vista. I, you may or may not know that it would, and right off the Italian market. And for months I would see these guys in uniform, uh, picking up trash and because I was involved in an effort to bring a special services district to the Italian market I knew that that plan was put on hold uh, uh, as COVID broke out so I know these guys weren't part of any special services district turns out after I do did some research they're part of PHL TCB yep. which is taking care of business where the city hires local folks puts them in uniform, and they make the city cleaner, litter-free, and greener. And it all came out of the mind of Sherelle Parker. Yep. And that's pretty awesome uh, because I think that's a program that I, we should now see scale up to include lots of different places. Is that right? Yeah. It, it's it, it was the brainchild of Parker. Um, she fought for the funding for it. And, you know, again, what I like about Parker is that, you know, a lot of folks would look at that and say, oh, it's great that we, you know, we got the trash, we, you know, litter is getting picked up. But on the back end of that, as you mentioned, you know, these are folks who have jobs that are getting on the job training. Um, it, 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 it's it's seen both as a boon to the business corridor, but it's also like a job readiness program. It's, right. it's a way to get folks employed. Um, and so I think that she really does, she really does try to connect the dots on a lot of these issues that, that some folks might not, uh, you know, may, may just take at face value. Um, so that's what I mean. I, I'm very excited to see with her in charge, 
you know, as city council, as a city council member, you, you know, especially a district member, you fight for what you can fight for in your district. Uh, and to have, you know, essentially to have the wheels to the, to the, the, the keys to the, the entire the, the entire city, um, you know, hopefully we'll see these scalable projects move citywide uh, and see the impact uh, scale up as well. Um, yeah. so. Part of our platform was a minimum wage of $17.53 an hour, which uh, by whatever metrics that they used uh, is the number you have to earn uh, hourly in order to afford Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. And uh, so that's another one. And she also wants to uh, pursue free business training. Uh, she has a, a program right now called Power Up Your Business program in conjunction with uh, Community College of Philadelphia. And she'd like to scale that as well. Th- it seems like um, she uh, got uh, the reputation during the campaign of not being quote unquote progressive minded whatever that is. Uh, but a lot of her policies are in fact progressive. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on who you're, who you're speaking to. If you have, you know, I think there's some, there's a lot of progressives out there that look at, uh, you know, the, the methodology or the, the policy and, and they judge whether something is progressive based on the policy. I think Sherelle, uh, and I think Maria Quinona Sanchez and I, I, I also kind of associate with, with, with this style of progressivism. It's, it's more of a pragmatic progressivism. It's if, if folks are now, uh, you know, have, are, are well-employed and, and are making a quality wage, whatever policy you put in place, that's a progressive policy because the outcome was progressive. Um, and I think that's really how, um, how a lot of a lot of that side of the, uh, the, uh, the, the progressive community really thinks about it. It's about the outcomes. It's about the ends. It's not necessarily about the means to get there. Um, you know, you have a lot of progressives who are very anti-business, but pro job. And it's like, well, you, you, who do you think creates jobs? Where do we think jobs come from? Uh, and, and I think that is the kind of uh, rhetoric that is, is rejected by folks like Parker, by Quinona Sanchez, and so somehow they're seen as less progressive because they, you know, they're focused more on the outcome rather than, you know, they they see policy as a tool to get them to the outcome that they want, not necessarily the policy is the 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 end in and of itself. Is the goal itself? Right? Yeah. Like for instance, um, heroin injection sites, right? The safe yep. injection sites. The the um, uh, the uber progressive uh, candidate in the race and and her supporters were all for it, but but you know this is a, a a kitchen table town, you know, and the the people who live in those neighborhoods that were most likely to get these injection sites were like hell no, you know, and you're not going to convince someone who is against it whether or not the policy is a good policy. You know, I personally don't know, but you're not going to convince someone uh, by letting by telling them that they're not progressive enough or enlightened enough uh, that they should allow a heroin injection site in you know in their neighborhood. Yeah, and it's it's actually I think uh, I think the progressive community is sort of showing its ass after this election. Uh, by some of the hot takes that we've seen where, you know, somebody was out there saying, well, you know, Sherelle won because, you know, all the low information voters went to her. Like, 
that's incredibly offensive. These oh, yeah. folks are not low information voters. Like they, they, they like the voters that voted for Sherelle had agency and they aligned with her just because they didn't agree with you does not make them low information voters. Um, and I think, I think truly that, that sort of attitude has been why, um, you know, the, you know, it's one thing to vote for, uh, an ultra progressive on a slate of five people, but I think it's it's one of the reasons why folks were so hesitant to make make them make the the most progressive candidate the the chief executive of the city because it, it you know that that sort of dismissive if you don't agree with me you're an idiot is just it has it's it's not going to win you the majority that you need it's not going to allow you to expand your base um, and I think as I said Sherelle was just sort of unapologetically Sherelle. Uh, during the campaign and that really appealed to a lot of voters because we are we are not you know philadelphia may be progressive in in in, in compared to the rest of the commonwealth uh but you know we're a relatively moderate democrat city when you oh, yes. when you bear down on when you when you have those kitchen table conversations um it's 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 a moderate city and sherelle i think tracked most closely to how most people most people think so we now have uh uh, assuming Sherelle wins, um, as history has proven, uh, the Democrat will win um, or should win. What are we looking at? All year school? Is it 12, 360 days a year? Of, yeah, I, 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 as, as the kids would say, I think that's a little sus. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, not, not, I'm not suggesting that she said that and doesn't want to explore it, but I think, you know, when you, you look at the reality of the situation, the, the school district struggles every year to get kids in school, like, you know, that first week of school, half the time they're getting sent home because most of the schools don't have air conditioning. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know how without some, a, a you know, besides like the condition of our buildings, you know, we have a teacher shortage, like. Yeah. I, I just I think there are a lot of just like operational and logistical roadblocks to that plan from happening. Um, I don't necessarily I I do not have I do not have children, uh, so I I logistically I don't know whether parents this this parents are thrilled about the idea of getting you know three more months of school or not. Uh, but I I just think logistically it's going to be really challenging um, to to make that leap at least right away. That might be something, you know, kind of down down the pike. Um, yeah, I I you know, don't see that happening anytime soon. Yeah, and to be fair, it's not 360 days of school a year. The model, the most common model, is the 4515, which is uh, 45 days and uh, of class, which is nine weeks, and then 15 days off, which is three weeks, and that would go for the full calendar year. So it ends up being actually the same number of days of instruction as we have now, just spread out differently. But you're yeah. right, major modifications to the buildings would have to be made. They need to be made anyway, but certainly if you're going to be having class uh, in, yeah. the, in the hotter months. Uh, I, I that, that model actually, I think, sounds great. Uh, again, not as someone that, that has a personal stake in it. Uh, but I know that, uh, you know, learning loss over the summer is a huge issue. Um, and so if they can, if they can figure out a way to, to, to make it work and minimize those learning loss impacts over the summer, 
you know, that's that's certainly look, I'm I she actually coined this phrase when people came out against the the 76ers arena uh, on Market East is, you know, this is not the time for reflexive op- opposition. Uh, so it's something that I've really sort of taken to heart is, you know, and I, I hope this is something that uh, every Philadelphian can can take to heart after this incredibly uh, uh, hard fought primary uh is to to you know just because your candidate didn't win didn't win you know hear what the new hear hear what the nominee has to say and don't immediately fall into a place of reflexive opposition because your 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 person didn't win so with that I would say I look forward to hearing more about uh, about uh, Parker's full year school plan and I will I will I will hesitate from any reflexive opposition other than to recognize we have a lot of building modifications that need to be made regardless of whether this plan gets implemented. Yeah. You mentioned the 76ers arena is the chance are the chances better today than they were a week ago before the primary. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I I think, I think the 76ers have to be thrilled, um, with the, the mayor's race, uh, outcome, um, just in terms of, you know, she's been very public, uh, about the, I, I don't know if she's come out in full support, but it, it's of the candidates. I think it's it's been uh, the the most uh, the most warm support of the project. Um, and I think she, you know, she's a person who is very focused. I, you know, I've been, I've been having this debate with, with friends, you know, about how is Parker going to be in terms of like the built environment zoning. She said some stuff on the campaign trail that has just sort of uh, ha- has kind of got 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 some folks worried you know if a neighborhood doesn't want a development it's not going to get that development you know if that's the case Vern, as you know if a neighborhood doesn't want to we're we're not going to see any development for the next eight years then um so you know i think my hope is that she looks at uh she she takes sort of like a two tier path in in terms of how she approaches development and recognizes that you know we do need development in the city if we are if we are truly worried about displacement if we are truly worried about affordability then you know we do need to support development in the city but also recognizing that you know she comes from a, a, a you know a very uh, stable neighborhood uh in the northwest and and wants to preserve the quality of life for the neighbors there uh and wants to do that for neighborhoods similarly situated across the city so my hope is that there there is some balance i think i think she's probably going to be more aggressive on on the bigger developments and a little more cautious on on sort of the the smaller neighborhood infill changes that we've we've seen uh you know pop up over the last decade or so i've always believed and correct me if if you think differently Differently, uh, the path to affordability is through multifamily dwellings. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's you know I th- I think a lot of times people think of public policy as just kind of like a switch where it's like you turn it on, you turn it off, you put this policy in place, the problem is solved. Um, and and I say this, people, I think the general public, as well as unfortunately some legislators themselves. And in reality, it's it's sort of like walking into a music studio and you see that huge mixing board with like a hundred sliders, and 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 really, you know, focusing on solving an issue involves like adjusting, you know, a hundred different sliders up and down. So I think that you know, multifamily dwelling is absolutely a huge component of of affordability uh, in the city, uh, and and there are a number of other policies that I think you know have to come into play, um, but. But also, you know, Philadelphia 
compared to most of our peer cities is relatively affordable. Um, and I think the, the issue is, you know, an income issue. So, you know, seeing Parker focused on this $17.53 minimum wage, you know, to me, that, that is, that is as important in, in creating affordability in Philadelphia as, you know, more buildings. Absolutely. Um, instead of mandating, uh, the market, uh, serve the poorest, um, it's an opportunity for the poorest to be, to be able to afford things. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. Absolutely. Uh, also she mentioned, uh, perhaps using the bringing back the old chestnut of the full 10 year tax abatement, uh, but connecting it to affordability. Uh, what's your take on, on, on where she may take this? Yeah, I think, I think Sherelle's, uh, her, her experience on council has shown a willingness to try to use tax policy as both a carrot and a stick um, for getting outcomes. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And this was an example where she was unsuccessful, but um, she had basically tried to uh, work with uh, the parking garage and parking lot owners to say, I will, I will cut the parking tax if you can create, if, if the, the parking valets and the parking attendants meet certain wage and healthcare standards. So if you promise me that the jobs that you have are well-paying, well-insured jobs, I'd be willing to cut the, the parking tax uh, as sort of like a, a carrot to make sure that these jobs are, are good jobs. Uh, and unfortunately, they couldn't come, the, the parking the parking garage folks couldn't, I, I don't think they could deliver on their end. I may be misremembering it. But she took a lot of flack in the press uh, and from certain organizations for proposing a parking tax cut. And it was just seen as Sherelle's trying to do this giveaway to parking tax owners. And in reality, she was trying to use tax policy to to impact a broader policy about workers and and wages, um, and it was it was I, you know she got a lot of flack. I really respected and admired her for trying to use tax policy to create uh, a, a bigger impact on people's lives. And I think you know the the, the tax abatement being tied to affordable housing is a kind of similar model. Um, so I you know I love it. I love that we we have this like terrible tax code. Um, I love that we're trying to use the fact that our tax code is terrible for good to like create actual good outcomes for it. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, I think she's going to face to, to, again, coin her phrase, a lot of reflexive opposition from people who don't who are only going to see uh, Sherelle Parker wants to bring back the tax abatement. It's a developer giveaway, blah, 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 blah. And instead, they're not going to see the actual impact on the number of affordable units created, things like that. Um, so I, I'm I am I'm glad to see that she did not uh, did not take that one defeat about the parking tax and decide it's not worth it. Um, and I, I think again, that's that's one of the things I like about uh, about Parker is that there's a there's like a, a fierceness and there's a, there's a there's a willingness to fight for things uh, and not immediately cow down uh, when when opposition presents itself. Five of the nine uh, votes she's going to need on council could come from the new city council at large folks: yep. uh, Jim Harity, uh, Rue Landau, Nina Ahmad. And the longer-term incumbents, Isaiah Thomas and Ms. Gilmore Richardson. Yep. Uh, where are their politics? How do you think it's going to align? I would imagine being a big supporter and champion of the uh, building trades, uh, we can count on Council Member Harity 
to get behind building something like the 76ers arena and development in general. But as far as the others, where do you think their politics are? Has council, has at least those five, have things moved to the left, to the right, or have they stayed the same? I think, um, I think, you know, it's, it's addition, it's it's subtraction by addition, addition by subtraction. I think it's, it's not just looking at the people that have come on recently, but also who left to resign to run for mayor. Um, and so you had, uh, Jim Harrity, who was, uh, who had been, uh, the ward leaders pick during the special election. So he's, he's kind of like a half incumbent, um, Harity is known as being a part, like probably the most staunchest party loyalist. Um, so much of Bob Brady's energy this past cycle was ensuring that Jim Harity won won his regular election and keeping him on council. Um, he really, I mean, went to the mattresses through everything he had to to get Harity back on council. Um, so I think you know Harity will be will will fall in line. I think he'll you know he'll be very supportive of the mayor's new agenda. Uh, council members Gilmore Richardson and Thomas are the you know relatively young incumbents. Um, this this is their second uh, this will be their second full term, um, and they're they're pretty they're relatively they're relatively moderate. I think their politics probably align very closely with Councilwoman Parker's. Um, you know, you had Councilwoman Gilmore Richardson reintroduced a curfew for teenagers, which, you know, progressives thought was very, you know, was very unpopular with progressives. Right. God but, forbid kids have to come in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but for folks with, you know, but for folks who actually have teenagers who they're worried about getting caught up in, in gun violence, you know, was seen as like a blessing, you know, of a course. reason to get their kids inside. Um, and then the, the two real new folks are going to be Rue Landau, uh, and Nita Ahmad. Um, Nita Ahmad, I, I know, had a lot of support from, uh, you know, the, the, it, I, I guess what I will say is that Ahmad's, Ahmad's victory was very much uh, in large part due to her, uh, her work of the, the, the party and the political system and things like that. So I, I think she's probably going to be a bit beholden to, uh, to the, she, she's going to be interesting. She's going to sort of I think follow kind of like the the Helen Gim track, so to speak, where on one hand you have this person who 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 expounds like very progressive policies. On the other hand, owes them being there in large part to unions and the trades. So I think the, I, I think at the end of the day, um, you're going to see a willingness to consider bringing back the tax abatement. Uh, and then with a uh, council member, or I should say council member elect Rue Landau, you know, Rue is sort of the, she, she's probably the wild card of the bunch. Um, she's incredibly progressive, but she's also incredibly reasonable as well. So I don't, I don't think we're going to see any sort of reflexive opposition from Rue. I think you'll have to prove to her that the affordable housing element is not just a fantasy or a pipe dream and that, that, that this trade will actually result in affordable units coming online. But, you know, she's a former housing attorney. She's, she has spent her career helping people who are housing insecure. So it, it's going to be a priority for her. I think she's just going to want, want to feel confident that any sort of deal to bring back the abatement is actually going to put affordable units on the market. Ahmad did have a lot of support from the development community. Uh, I believe she's even married to a, a real estate developer. Yep. Uh, and uh, Rue will not, will not suffer fools uh, gladly. Uh, you know, as a true South Philly girl, uh, yep. if you you know if you try and blow smoke, uh, she'll call you out on it. So if those affordable programs better work, and they just 
not you know they better not just yeah. be something I, I actually on paper. I actually see Rue sort of um, Rue I feel like is going to be for for those longtime city council followers uh, you had Bill Greenley who took over for David Cohen and and the two of them and and I think Rue is going to really fill this fill this this void uh, they're going they're going to be the conscious of council um, they're really going to be the heart of council in terms of uh, you know. They're folks that care about the policy, but but they're also going to be the voice for the, the, the least represented and the least resourced residents among us. Let's briefly talk about the 8th Council District. Cindy, Cindy Bass, uh, incumbent, uh, just squeaked by uh, uh, with a challenge from the left, from like the very, very left. Uh, but tell us about that. And your take? Yeah, that race was incredibly interesting and dysfunctional, and and a rarity, um, Vern, as you as you know, and yep. as I know far too well. Uh, incumbent district council people rarely get challengers, uh, and so um, so I think between I, I I should say longstanding incumbent. If you're a new incumbent, you may have someone who thinks that, you know, you've only been there one term, they can, or you've been, you want a special, they can take a shot at you. Uh, but longstanding incumbent district council people rarely get challengers uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, so the fact that she got a challenger is interesting in and of itself, and I think uh, is evidence of, I, I don't want to say her, her I, a growing dissatisfaction, I think, throughout the district um, with with some of the the decisions that have been made and some of the uh, some of the stories that have come out regarding what what I, I would say the spin has been that she is she's playing favoritism with certain developers. There's not accountability for developments and and and, and the neighborhood is, is is sort of suffering. I think what's interesting is when you look at where this the challenger who you mentioned is very far left, you know, like a self-avowed communist yeah. uh, left, <laughs> um, you know, not, not, there's no implicit there had said it in a debate. Um, you know, this guy won Chestnut Hill. Uh, it's, it's fascinating when, you know, he, he won Chestnut Hill, the, the, the sort of uh, more under-resourced black neighborhoods kind of, they, they, they tended to stick with Cindy but the wealthier the neighborhood, the more likely they were to go to the challenger on the left. Uh, and this is something that you saw with Helen Gim as well. She tended to perform much better in wealthier neighborhoods than she did in uh, less wealthy neighborhoods. Uh, and so I think there's like a really and I haven't had I haven't really gotten a chance to like think about it or, or pull the thread on it. But, you know, this idea that the, the further left and the further per, like seen as progressive you are, the more likely you are to win the wealthier neighborhoods is really interesting. Yeah, uh, the wealthy white folks who don't have to actually live day to day with the implications of policies or, or, yep. or problems they're trying to solve, uh, and those that do seem to go another way. Yeah, uh, North Philadelphia and Germantown were sol- solidly in the uh, Cindy Bass camp, yeah. where whereas uh, West Mount Airy for sure and all of Chestnut Hill uh, went for the. Uh, the, the communist candidate, which strangely yeah. enough, yeah. and and I, I I think it's I, I mean I I think you know the lesson, you know there's a there's a strong lesson there for, you know I I've read I've read the 
you know, you had the city committee letter and then, of course, you know, the 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 progressive community, you know, not that there was one single spokesperson, but there was a there was a a, a blog post about, you know, where things went wrong. And and I'm not I'm not quite sure that like the le- I, I'm not sure that the lesson is being learned about, you know, where where things are going off the rails here for why the movement growth has stalled. I think, you know, there's a lot of pointing to like Larry Krasner as like, see, or see, you know, we're on the right track. But, but since then, like the, it, it hasn't, the, the success, the success outside of wealthy neighborhoods just has not, has, has just not happened. Um, you know, you've seen some very progressive candidates get elected in South Philadelphia, in parts of center city, but, outside of those areas it, the movement has has sort of stalled and and I, I do wonder if there's a there's a a realignment of of uh, of values or a, a, a some self-reflection headed into the next cycle but remains to be seen yeah well politics like everything else is a market and every once in a while the market has a correction right so yep. that's and that uh, eighth district development, as you said, development, gentrification, uh, and being pushed out, taxed out, forced out, those issues really came to the to the top of you know of the discussion. And you hear it a lot in other districts as well and citywide. Is it time to remove the district council person's power over these developments? Is should should we if not eliminate the practice and tradition, at least curtail councilmanic prerogative. I mean, you're yes, yes, and yes. Uh, I actually ran for a district council seat, and I ran on eliminating councilmanic prerogative, or at least very much reducing it, or trying to minimize the nefarious impact of it. Um, I think there are, you know, there are a number of there are a number of challenges. I think I think what's really frustrating is that we have this entire planning commission that you know puts together these like visions for the city in 2035 and how we're going to grow and where we should be you know pushing development for you know and things like that and at the end of the day the decision comes down to like a single individual whether something's going to happen or not right um and it it's incredibly it's incredibly frustrating because we're not we're not we don't have a plan we're just like we're just a very reactive city uh, and we're a city that I think, you know, the, it's not just councilmanic prerogative that is the issue. Um, it is it is this concept of, you know, at what point, at what point, you know, where when, when you're asking for community input, what is the level of community input and where does that community input going go go from being input to like actually just being a veto power. Um, and I think we've sort of crossed the line in a lot of ways where community input is no longer input. It's, it's become direct democracy over development and, and that's problematic. And I'll, I'll give another example of where this just happened was, you know, Washington Avenue, you live on the, the, the side that got safety improvements. East. I live on the, yeah, I'm on the east side. Yeah. You're on the east side. I'm on the west side. I am, you know, a block and a half away from the Christian street. Y and a lot of our kids, come from the other side of Washington Avenue. We have a, you know, seventh graders get a free membership and they take advantage of it. And, and these kids have to cross this incredibly dangerous street. And 
it had overwhelming community support, uh, just like from raw numbers, major support to do serious road diet, traffic calming measures. Uh, And at the end of the day, five or six people in the district who were the loudest and the squeakiest and the most politically connected managed to convince the council person that, you know, changing Washington Avenue would, you know, basically, I don't I, there was there a whole host of negative things they said would happen if we changed Washington Avenue. And they were able to stop it because one council member wouldn't introduce a bill. Uh, and like, this is this is like, we're talking about like traffic, traffic safety, we're talking about things that are like designed to save people's lives. And, you know, a community input input from a small group killed that project. Um, and so, you know, you see this with uh, you know, affordable housing projects. Um, I, the, this West Philly example just absolutely kills me is that, you know, you had the, 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 the issue with the university city townhomes where HUD was the, the HUD, uh, affordable contract was going to expire. They weren't going to renew it. 70 families were going to be displaced from affordable housing, which is obviously a, a huge issue. Uh, meanwhile, a couple blocks away, there was an affordable building proposed, and they cut 70 affordable units out of that building in order to add more parking. Yeah. And at UC townhomes, you had pr- like protest and sit-ins and all of these things to preserve 70 affordable units. And then three blocks away, the neighbors asked 70 affordable units to be cut. And there was, n- there was no, there was no opposition whatsoever to that. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so frustrating. I know, you know, cause you do zoning law, but it's yep. just, it's so frustrating to continually be be the reason why, like, yeah, it's incredibly frustrating. We're doing this to ourselves. Everyone has the right, everyone is entitled to weigh in uh, on a neighborhood project, be it a safer traffic pattern for Washington Avenue or a real estate uh, multifamily development. At the end of the day, everyone has the right to weigh in, but the deciders should not be the squeakiest wheel and a district and a a district council person who uh you know outside of one of them uh doesn't know a thing about city planning you know uh, jamie gauthier is the only city planner on council the other nine members are great people but they're not developers they're not city planners they're not traffic engineers uh and to allow the neighbors who are even less informed, typically, uh, to dictate their position, which ultimately hinders growth, is and, is dangerous. Yeah, and I think I think there's an argument. Like, and, and look, I don't I don't even necessarily blame the district council people for this position that they're in. Uh, I the the issue to me is that you know they're so worried. Everybody's worried about reelection, and people step into the voting booth not thinking to themselves oh man, I'm so happy. Like nobody ever steps into the voting booth going, oh, you know, my, my wage tax went down 0.02%. So I'm going to vote for this person. But they do step into the voting booth and say, you raised my real estate taxes. They focus on the negative. There's an outside focus on the negative. So council members are, are naturally inclined to try to minimize the negative. Uh, and, and to that, that means, you know, it, it means caving a lot of times to these groups. Um, so I think at some point, you know, stripping councilmatic prerogative is sort of this unwritten rule. But there are things in the charter that say that city council must approve, must introduce zoning ordinances. City council must approve land transfers, things like that. 
Uh, the problem is that in order to get them to give up, they have to be the ones that decide to give up this power. There's yeah. no one else that can take it away from them. And that's not happening at any time soon. No. Uh, Daryl Clark is is leaving council, and that means he's vacating the presidency of city council. Yep. The president of council dictates a whole heck of a lot of what goes on and is often the partner of the mayor uh, in policies. We've seen that with Ed Rendell and John Street and then John Street and Daryl Clark. Uh, what's it look like as far as uh, the next city council president? So we've had so much turnover on council over the last two cycles. There are actually relatively kind of few names that are, are I don't want to say eligible, because in theory any council person is eligible, but uh, likely. Um, so just sort of going in council district order, you know, Mark Squilla, uh, has been on council for a while. He's very well liked. He is seen as, you know, the the sort a guy that uh, I love. Mark. He's just he's he's always going to listen to you. He'll probably respond to your email himself, uh, and he he just he really looks to the community for for you know for guidance. He's a he's a guy that says go talk to the neighbors and then come talk to me. He was um, the uh, he was the guest here on our season finale of the first oh, nice. uh, first season. Uh, he's my council person, as you know, and a, and a friend. He's a great guy. He's the best. Yep. Yeah, he's he's great. Um, you have Councilman Kenyatta Johnson uh, in the 2nd District, who's also been on council for a number of years, who is actively, uh, actively kind of jockeying for the council presidentship. Um, and then Councilman Curtis Jones, who is probably one of the more senior, I think other than Brian O'Neill, is the most senior council member. Um, he, he, you know, Councilman Johnson is in his 40s. Councilman Jones is, uh, is, is a couple decades older. Um, so, you know, I, I think he, he is certainly looking to end his career, Councilman Jones, that is, on a, on a high note of leadership as council president. He's another guy that's seen as like, you know, we'll talk to anybody, compromise guy. He's the majority um, whip, is that right? He's the majority, I believe he's the majority leader. He okay. took over for Councilwoman Parker once um, once she resigned to run. So in theory, he's sort of next in line in terms of uh, the council presidency. Um, and then the only other name that I've heard that I think is really viable, and, and she would be a bit of a dark horse, is Councilwoman Catherine Gilmore Richardson, um, who, as I mentioned, is a relatively new councilwoman, yeah. but she spent, you know, a decade before she was elected working in a council office. So she's she's very mature and very seasoned and very um, just she is she is what I will say, probably the 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 best of the body in terms of the res the, the respect she shows the institution and just how she holds herself out there and how she leads um, and I think she she could be an incredible council president as well even even without the seniority I think she is that well respected uh, by her colleagues um, so you know frankly the new elected folks are going to uh, to have a huge say in uh, who becomes council president you need you need nine votes to, to get the leadership position there. Um, and I know that as part of the election, there was a lot of horse trading uh, amongst the folks that are seeking council presidency uh, with the with the candidates of, you know, you have council people who are ward leaders. You know, you'll get on my ballot if you promise me you'll vote for me for council president type thing. Uh, so that race that race was well underway before the primary even started. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing who uh, takes on the job. It's a big job and an important one. Yep. 
So you, uh, you, you know, get around town all the time. Uh, I need to ask you, where do you go for your ultimate meal in Philadelphia? Most folks probably don't know this because, like, they look at me, but I grew up in a Lebanese family, so I absolutely love Middle Eastern food. Mm. Um, so I would say I'm going to give you my top three. Um, they're probably very popular, but um, I love Zahav. Zahav is, like, my ultimate, like... Yeah. If I could eat well, there every day, I would eat there every day. Yeah. Uh, but I also really, really enjoy um, Soraya up in uh, Fishtown, uh, which is Middle Eastern. Um, fantastic and just like absolutely gorgeous restaurant. Uh, and my my old favorite, which I haven't been to their new location and I'm kind of bummed because they also moved to Fishtown, Kalea, which is Thai food. Um I have a pretty high spice tolerance in Kalea. I, I made the mistake of telling that to the owner, uh, and she basically broke me with spices. So nope, I'm, yeah. a huge, I'm a huge Kalea fan. I was Thai, Thai food. I was too until they left Bella Vista. Now I know a bad breakup. So I'm terrible. Not even I know. Talk I can't bring. It. I can't bring myself to to see them after their I'm their joking, glow up their glow up period their yeah. glow up phase. I liked them back when they you know there were eight tables and. Yeah. You, you know, you're bumping butts with the person behind you. I was doing so. carry out through most of most of COVID of lockdown. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so good. But Zahav is, you know, I think arguably the very best restaurant in the city of Philadelphia. So good. Good selection. Thank you. Thank you. Lauren Vitas, it was such a pleasure talking to you today about uh, the future of of Philadelphia's politics and how it impacts our building environment. Uh, and um, I do thank you again for your time. Sure. If I could just do a quick plug. Uh, yes. You did mention my uh, my Twitter and my, my newsletter. Yep. Uh, I'm broad and market, all one word, on Twitter. Uh, and if you want to sign up for my weekly newsletter, which is just a recap of what's going on in council, sometimes I do additional analysis uh, about the state of affairs, the state of the union. Uh, it's broadandmarket.substack.com. Again, broad and market, all one word, and it's all free and just my my, my mind ramblings about the, the goings on of, of City Hall. Thank you. And I'll continue to follow you on those live tweets at City Council Sessions. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for having me. Anytime. Take good care. Well, that's our show for today, folks. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have questions or concerns about zoning matters in the city of Philadelphia, please visit us at phillyzoning.com. Otherwise, we'll see you next time.